market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi? This is First Minister's questions. Just once, just once, it would be nice to get a First Minister's answer. Any political party in this chamber that was confident in their arguments around independence would not be desperate to deny the people of Scotland the right to make that choice. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to The Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. My name is Connor Matchett, I'm Deputy Political Editor at the paper, and with me, as always this week, is our political editor, Alistair Grant. Alistair, how are you? Is it going well? It's going well, yeah, I'm good. How are you? It's been a busy week. It feels. It's also felt like quite a long week, but we're approaching the end and that's only a positive. Yeah, January always feels like this. <laughs> Going on for absolutely ever. I've got a holiday next week, it'll be fine. Um, we've got an interview with uh, the youngest MSP in Scotland, Emma Roddick, later on. Um, but first of all, we'll have a quick chat about what's gone on in Parliament and in Scottish politics this week. And there's only really one thing to talk about, isn't there, which is the case of transgender rapist Isla Bryson. Take us through, Alistair, the kind of basic facts of the story and why why this is a political debate in Holyrood today. Yeah, so like you say, it's kind of the main thing we could talk about, really. Um, it was quite expected that this would be brought up at First Minister's Questions today. Um, there was a full expectation that the Scottish Conservatives, Douglas Ross, would bring it up. Yeah, so this is the case of Isla Bryson, who was found guilty of two counts of rape at the High Court in Glasgow earlier this week on Tuesday. Um, Bryson committed the crimes when they were known as Adam Graham so they changed their gender uh, in the process of this and it's caused the case has kind of come at a kind of politically febrile time for this kind of thing so we've obviously had the gender recognition legislation that was passed in Holyrood before Christmas um, voted through by a, a majority of MSPs but has since been blocked by the UK government and there's a whole kind of constitutional row going on with that um, and during that debate, there was an amendment put forward by the Scottish Conservatives that kind of touched on issues similar to this. It was about uh, a person being able to change their gender. Um, in, the, in the case of this amendment, it was during a trial, so it would kind of stop people being able to change their, their gender during a, a, a trial. Um, and this was one of the kind of wider debates that was playing into this. Um, and so the Scottish Conservatives uh, brought it up to the FMQs, essentially saying that um, I think as far as Douglas Ross was concerned, it was an outrage that uh, a rapist was being held in a women's prison because just to go back when Isla Bryson was convicted on Tuesday, she's now being held in remand at uh, Quarantine Vale, the women's prison. Um, and I think there's news today, I think that Bryson is being moved or is definitely in the process of being moved to a male prison now. Um, but the fact that Bryson was held in a women's prison on remand has caused... Huge controversy, huge backlash in Scotland um, and huge kind of debate about uh, cases like this. This is the first case of a trans woman, I think, being found guilty of rape. Um, so Douglas Ross bringing it up today. Yeah, so I don't think Douglas Ross expected that answer. Um, so Nicola Sturgeon saying that a rapist should not be held in a women's prison. Um, and Douglas Ross was now kind of essentially calling for ministers to use the powers they have to kind of stop incidents like, like this happening again. So certainly the, the kind of press release that the Scottish Conservatives put out after FMQs was calling for a, blank, a blanket ban on rapists being held in women's prisons. 
Um, but it was the, the issue that dominated FNQs. Nicola Sturgeon was doorstepped by journalists afterwards, just as she came out of the chamber, um, who were kind of asking her if she had directly intervened, if she told the Scottish Prison Service that Bryson had to be moved from Corton Vale. And she was said that there was no formal direction. But she was then asked if she'd made her views clear, and she kind of dodged the question a little bit. Uh, and I thought it was interesting that the, the post-FMQ's briefing with Nicola Sturgeon's spokesman, uh, he was essentially saying that the, the Scottish Prison Service was, was aware of Nicola Sturgeon's position. So I think there's a question as to how much the Scottish Government have got involved here, how much they've directly told the Scottish Prison Service that they do not want Bryson to be held in a women's prison. Uh, and I think it's important because um, certainly on Wednesday, the SNP Justice Secretary, Keith Brown, gave the impression that the Scottish Government was quite happy for this decision to be in the hands of the Scottish Prison Service. He essentially called them the experts, said they know what they're doing, they've got a great track record when it comes to this kind of thing, they, they know how to carry out these risk assessments and that ministers wouldn't get involved. But I think there's maybe a question as to how much ministers did get involved. And there's two important things as well to, to mention, is that these crimes by Bryson were committed while they were a man. Um, prior to their transition, as you say, and also that the situation involving where Bryson ended up in incarcerated over the last couple of days also hasn't been impacted by the Gender Recognition Reform Bill. That obviously isn't in force. It doesn't matter if someone's got a Gender Recognition Certificate if they end up in um, a women's prison or not. But yeah, you're right. I think we it was a bit of a farcical post-FMQ's briefing, wasn't it, with um, the, the the first minister's spokesperson, who, you know, accused journalists of dancing on the head of the pin, and we were simply trying to establish what had happened, when, and how. I think one of the things that came out of that was that um, the first minister's spokesperson was like, "Well, you would have expected the first minister's views to have been told to the prison service, um, but that it, there wasn't any formal direction." Um, which begs the question, you know, how how much, as you as you say, Alistair, did 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 the first minister um, intervene? He rejected my characterisation of it, which was that she had interfered in it, and that ministers regularly interfere in the actions of public bodies, which is a, not a particularly shocking position to take um, from the government's point of view. But it does highlight, doesn't it, the the kind of specific individual case of someone transitioning to be female who was, was is a convicted sex offender um, for something they committed while, while a male, and also the, the kind of wider gender-critical self-ID concerns that have surrounded the Gender Recognition Reform Bill in the total. I mean, to a degree, the, the Scottish Conservatives couldn't have wished for a better demonstration of the concern that they were raising during Stage 3. Yeah, I mean, just to go back to what you were saying initially, uh, I mean, this post-FMQ's briefing, I mean, just to give listeners an idea of how these things usually go, it's usually about 10 minutes of questions about things that have come up during FMQs, and to be honest, you don't usually get very illuminating answers. No. Um, but Which whole, is the point from the government's point of view as well. Yeah, the, I mean, the whole point from journalists' point of view is to kind of test things that were said in FMQs, get a bit more information, get a bit more background on what the Scottish government's position is. And I think today it went on for almost 40 minutes. It went on for a long time and most of the questions, uh, pretty much in the entirety actually, up until a few minutes at the end, were about this issue. Uh, and, and like you say, about to what extent the government intervened, even just trying to get basic things like a timeline as Absolutely, to when the yeah. government became 
uh, became aware that Bryson was being moved to Elden Remand in Carton Vale when they had conversations with the SPS, how the SPS became aware of Nicholas Sturgeon's views on this matter. But even getting that kind of basic information was really hard. It was, it was deliberately done, wasn't it, to avoid a situation where we could go as journalists, well, we know who is accountable for this decision being taken. Yeah. It was to muddy those waters. And it certainly seems that at some point over the last 24 hours, certainly when we're recording this podcast, mm-hmm. since Keith Brown stood up in Parliament on Wednesday and made his statement in response to an urgent question from the Scottish Conservative MSP, Russell Finlay, uh, and, and as I said earlier on, basically gave the indication that Scottish Government had no intention to get involved in this. It certainly seems like something has changed since then. And I think, you know, cynically you look at it and what has changed is the scale of the backlash and the amount of press coverage, you know, the amount of concerns that are being raised by diverse groups. Uh, and you're right that this couldn't have come at a more politically potent time. Mm-hmm. It's an issue that's a kind of wider debate that, you know, we're all very aware of in Holyrood. We've spoken about it before in the podcast in relation to the the gender recognition legislation. And while, as you say, uh, prisons don't take into account uh, gender recognition certificates when they're making individual case-by-case decisions and where a prisoner is going to be held, it does play into that wider debate. And some of the wider concerns that were brought up during that about um, essentially Scottish Conservatives and many others would argue uh, a predatory man um, taking advantage of the situation to try and, uh, in this case, get into a, a women's prison. Um, these are some of the fears that people had uh, and I think it's it's that kind of interplay between these kind of wider debates about legislation in this very specific case as I say it's the first time certainly that I'm aware of that uh, a trans woman has been convicted of rape I mean just to give a bit of background in case people aren't aware uh, the crime of rape in Scotland is quite specific it involves having a penis essentially um, so it's the first time that's happened very specific Thing, but it's ha- having this kind of interplay with this wider debate. And yeah, it's politically potent. I think it's important, well, let, let's m- mention Scottish Labour because I think it's important to note for completeness how far away they stayed from this debate. They've been very generally quite quiet over the last couple of days on this particular case. And again, Anna Sara went in on FMQs on health um, and accident and emergency statistics I, I i don't know what you think but we, we, we're having what is evidently a culture war between you know those who subscribe to the self-id etc that's been passed via the gender recognition reform bill versus the the more socially conservative arguments of the uk um conservative party and conservative government um, labor want to do anything but talk about this at some point they're going to have to say something yeah, I mean, it's it's something they yeah they really don't want to talk about. Uh, Anna Sarwar, Scottish Labour leader, often wants to, um, some would say, take the middle of the road position, be in the fence for a lot of things. He's sometimes very unwilling to take a firm view on on issues that he perceives to be kind of politically toxic. Um, Do you think he's been undercut on this by Keir Starmer? Because there was an interesting uh, piece in the Spectator today. I was um, trying to remember where it was before I went yeah. on to it. Yeah. I was try- I think you're referring to the reporting that Keir Starmer essentially uh, is now of the view that this is a UK-wide issue and, and he's, he's the one in charge, Absolutely. essentially. Um, I think he... I think it's... It certainly seems like Keir Starmer was not fully across this and wasn't really aware of the kind of wider debate around this legislation that was going through Holyrood. Maybe didn't really have 
probably aware of it, but not just not that engaged in that wider conversation. And now the issue has become so huge because of the kind of legislation being passed and the UK government moving to block it. It's become this much wider uh, debate that's being covered in newspapers across the UK. And he's trying to have to get across it now. And his views, certainly when he was interviewed a couple of weeks ago on the Laura Koonsberg show, um, and essentially said, you know, 16 was too young to change to change gender, which is not the position of Scottish Labour, who certainly voted for the legislation as it went through Holyrood. Um, I think there was an amendment, to be fair to him, that were around this issue, but the crux of the matter is that they voted for the legislation going through Holyrood that Keir Starmer is now raising concerns about. Do you think that Starmer is... I, I mean, a, a, potentially an unfair statement, but he t- tends to be driven by the winds rather than by principle. Do you think this is an example of where he has noticed that there might be a a weakness in backing up Scottish Labour on, in a national context and that he'll just take the flak from Anasawa, but he's not going to take the flak from the Daily Mail? I mean, and driven by the winds rather than principle could probably cover quite a lot of uh, politics, to True. be honest. <laughs> Maybe unfair to pinpoint Keir Starmer on that. But yeah, I mean, I think on this issue, I think certainly the concerns he raised in that Laura Koonsberg interview, stuff like the the age, the reduction in the age from 18 to 16, was something that was raised by quite a wide, diverse group. And if you look at the polling around this particular issue, um, certainly a lot of the polls show that the public in general is supportive of some kind of reform of the gender recognition process. There's a lot of sympathy for people who have to go through it. But when you ask them about specifics, uh, things like that, things like lowering the age from 18 to 16, are unpopular. And I think he is, that will have had an impact on his view. Um, but again, it's it's a concern that lots of people have shared. So, yeah. Absolutely. Well, I sat down with Emma Roddick, who is the SNP MSP for the Highlands and Island region. Um, she is the youngest MSP in the Scottish Parliament, inheriting that title from none other than the Scottish Greens, Ross Greer. Um, I spoke to her uh, earlier this week on a variety of topics. So, hello and welcome to the steamy MSP for the Highlands and Islands, SNP MSP for the Highlands yes. and Islands, Emma Roddick. How have you been? You've been doing a lot. We were just talking before we started this interview. You've been doing a lot of media around the current hot topic of Section Thirty-Five, gender recognition reform. Um, how are you finding that? You're you're still very young for a politician, youngest MSP I think in the building. Yes. That must be quite a big thing to have to deal with. Yeah, I think um, the the biggest thing to to get over with that is is people underestimating you um, and. You know, early on there was certainly a lot more condescension uh, than there is now. Right. Um, I think I've managed to make a few people afraid of me at this point in the <laughs> chamber. They don't take my interventions anymore, so I think that's a good sign. So the follow-up question to that is, who's afraid of you? Oh, I can, I can tell you, but, you know, check who doesn't take my interventions. <laughs> so how have you found it? I mean, it's it, you were, from my research, correct me if I'm wrong, you were a councillor following a by-election just before yeah. COVID, then COVID hits... Yeah. And then you become an MSP in May 2021. That's a, that's a short political career by any yeah any measure. Yeah, and uh, an interesting start, I think. Um, so when I got elected in the, the by-election, um, at that time I was working in the Scottish Ambulance Service mm. and it was the biggest risk I've ever taken because you have to quit before you're allowed to campaign. Sure. <laughs> so, so that was interesting. And then there was a snap 
general election mm-hmm. straight after I got elected, and then COVID. So I think I had one full council meeting mm-hmm. in the building, and, and then I was down here and we had pretty much the same. There were all these COVID precautions. I didn't meet a lot of my colleagues until um, a few months in. I think there's one or two I still haven't met face to face because things are still so different to, to how it would have been for, for previous intakes. And what, what, how do you find the difference in the jump from council life to Holyrood life? You know, I think, I think people think it's kind of a progression, but it's not. They are completely different jobs. Um, you're dealing with completely different issues. Um, there are different challenges in both as well. I mean, here there is more support for research and and things like that, whereas with a councillor, you're kind of doing everything on your own. Um, you are the caseworker, the comms officer, the, the researcher, everything. And you, you bring a lot of, I think the, the phrase many campaigners use is lived experience to Hollywood across various different things. I'm glad you said that because most people jump to what experience has she got (laughs) not, oh, look at the experience she's got because I I think it is important that we recognise not everyone's life is the same Mm -hmm. so um, someone will go through things in their teenage years that others who have maybe worked three jobs up to the time they're 50 will never understand. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's touch on that a little bit. I think you've, you've spoken to some media outlets about this before but um from my understanding you're homeless for a period yeah um you've you've struggled with mental health um issues as well um what what have you found most what what has left you with the biggest amount of resilience maybe is the best way of asking that question because they're they're very different experiences in in their own way yeah i think you know in terms of resilience it was probably earlier than that like um growing up my mum being disabled, helping her out quite a lot. I think you grow up quite a bit faster mm. doing that. Um, having mental health issues, if you get the right support, and it took me a lot of times to figure out what support was the right support, um, once you figure out, oh, these are the, the patterns that my brain's been going through, mm. this is why I get upset when I shouldn't really get upset, then you do kind of leave with a bit of a degree in your own mind mm-hmm. um, and I think it, it helps you to understand why you're reacting the way you are and maybe you know in the chamber I'll be less anxious than others who don't have mental health issues because I'm going right okay I recognise that I feel anxiety right now this is how I'm going to calm myself down I'm going to focus on this and it's yeah it really kind of helps rewire your mind. Mm-hmm. And do, do you think that's helped you get used to this place and the particularly I think and we'll, we'll come on to the online world in a bit but oh, particularly yeah. that that kind of scrutiny that the MSPs are under particularly online yeah I think I always try and keep things in perspective you know there are times in the chamber where you do feel very under attack very watched um, very on edge but I think when you've been genuinely really depressed and wondered you know if you're a worthwhile person that's not really comparable it's just standing in the chamber arguing with people mm-hmm. you know um, <laughs> I do yeah. what, what, what do you think your experience, experience of online Scottish politics has been it, it just gets worse and worse doesn't it I think um, Twitter in particular people build up their own little bubbles and it's just an echo chamber and, and their views get more and more entrenched Um I was, I was just speaking about this last night with some colleagues. Um, a few of us have taken Twitter off our phones. 
um, it's got to the point where if I want to put something out on Twitter, I'll you know type it out, make sure it's the right length of characters, put a photo, send it to my team, say put this up, don't read the comments. <laughs> and is that is that something you've done because of the abuse or just because of? Yeah, and you know you get dragged in, and there a lot of it's just nonsense, but some some comments can get quite personal, and you know there are there are times where and people won't mean it or they won't know enough about you to to know why it's a problem, but. You know, folk have commented on pretty pretty normal things that I'm putting out, saying, "Here's what I did in chamber today," and they'll go, "Oh, uh, your parents must be disappointed." And to me, that kind of hits. Um, but it's it just it's not worth expending your energy on when there are so many things going on in this place every single day, so many issues to debate. Not to invoke the law of wings, but um, that website and that mm. commentator is. I is one of the often he publishes things that that lead to a tirade of abuse, particularly yeah. on sitting MSPs. How how have you handled that? I mean, some of his recent stuff has gone viral. It's been very aggressive in its language. Yeah, I'm not going to repeat any of it for obvious no. reasons for those who've read the pieces. But I mean, does this does this make you think that you're less likely to engage in politics online going forward? Yeah. Because, as I say, I've, I've taken Twitter off my phone. I know mm. a number of colleagues have as well. Mm. Um, and it still means that constituents can engage with me. Um, I can still tell them what I'm up to. But it does put a bit of a barrier up between us, and I don't like that. But when it gets to the stage of, you know, you're receiving horrible things in the post and email because of what somebody's read on Twitter or a blog, mm-hmm. you've got to draw the line somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, for for that blogger in particular, I've I've just muted him. I don't read it. Um, there are times, you know, we'll walk around and um, I'll say, oh, it's been a, a bit of a day in the inbox today, and someone will go, oh yeah, it's it's uh, wings is posted today, and I'll say, oh yeah, that explains it. It's like the new full moon. <laughs> and, and let's go on to GRI. You've done, as I mentioned right at the start, you've been all over the TV. Um, over the last few weeks after Section 35. What's your kind of feeling with the bill, its progression through Parliament, and also what's happened in the last couple of weeks? With Section, and it's a very broad question, but yeah. you look at it from, from, from step away from the immediate kind of political controversy of the day and look at it as a whole, and how do you assess it? Well, it's really difficult because there are so many aspects to it, and I have a lot of feelings about it. Um, I supported the bill. I wasn't on the committee um, who took the lead on scrutinising the bill, but I, I was as involved as I could be, and I recognised that, that they did a power of work. You know, this is probably the most scrutinised bill that has gone through this place. And I feel sad for them, sad for all of us who put time and effort into it for somebody who didn't, wasn't there for, for all these debates to just say, no, we don't like that. Um, I'm sad for those who gave evidence. We got some really, really touching evidence from from trans people um, saying what this meant to them, why the the process as it is at the moment wasn't working for them or was re-traumatising them in a lot of ways. Um, And then, of course, there's the other side of it, the the constitutional element, where I'm just really angry as an independent supporter. And an MSP who was sent here by constituents to vote for them, on their behalf, on devolved issues, that that can be so easily overturned. And we all knew 
that it could be so easily overturned. But I don't think we expected Whitehall to, you know, press the nuclear button. And what are your views on? I think you were the one, the MSP, who brought up misgendering in during the debate. Yeah, there was some misgendering. Well, obviously, the SNP has been split. It's it's a it's not a fifty fifty split. People who claim that it is obviously don't know the actual split. But it's a difficult situation for you to be in to have colleagues who don't align with the views of the government and with with the party. How did you how did you feel challenging? I think it was Ash Reagan at the time yeah. on her language in in the chamber over the bill. Well, you know, I was I was sitting at the the back of the chamber when when she was speaking and. I just sort of turned to my colleague who was sat to my right and I just said, that poor wee boy, you know, and, and I just really felt for them. And I said, I think I should say something. Do you think I should say something? And we kind of thought for a few minutes and, yeah, afterwards I decided, you know, what if what if they know that it's, it's their own story that's being told here and I wanted there to be something in the official report that recognise what had just happened to them. Is it acceptable for that to have no. happened? And I, I think, you know, there are a lot of different unacceptable things in language um, and unacceptable bigotries um, and many of the others, if they were spoken in Parliament, you would expect there to be a kind of call of order and, and it to be called out and people to have to apologise. But for some reason... Transphobia seems to be an acceptable form of bigotry. I don't think it is, but it's certainly being accepted where others wouldn't be. What do you, what do you make of other colleagues within the parties? I think the SNP is torn apart a little bit by differing views, and and there are going back to our point about Twitter and discussions of bubbles and things like that. It does appear that there are prominent people within the SNP who ha- hold very different views. I don't know whether or not you think that these people should be in the party or should should be forced out. I don't, I don't know. I'm intrigued. I think overall in the SNP we've got a lot of different views on a, a lot of different issues because the, the thing that's really brought us all together is independence. You know, I've got colleagues who I would never agree with on tax policy or <laughs> or anything else, but when it, when it comes to sitting in this parliament as an SNP MSP, even as a backbencher, you have to get behind the government. That's that's our party, you know, governing. <laughs> we we need to we need to get behind them and support them, especially when it is a commitment that was made in the manifesto multiple times that there was consensus on until just a few years ago. And what what do you think is the way forward for devolution? If we go back to the section thirty five aspect of it, that it's it's of. You know, the, the, your opponents would point out that it's in the Scotland Act, the Section 35 yeah. ability, and that that's baked in into devolution, and that arguably Alistair Jack is defending devolution and and the and the union by yeah. by his action. I mean, I think he's doing us a favour more than he is himself. Uh, <laughs> and yes, it is in the Scotland Act. Is, isn't that awful? You know, isn't it? Isn't it terrible that the UK government can just overrule us? They don't even need to give that good a reason. They can put out a press release saying the Scottish government should sit down and talk things through and make some changes so that it's acceptable to them, then refuse to come to Scotland and talk to us about it. You know, I think the committee even said you can you can attend virtually nothing. Is this the sort of fight that you got into politics for? 
I got into politics for many reasons. You know, before I got into party politics, I was a campaigner. I campaigned on mental health um, for better housing, uh, for animal welfare with the SSPCA. And it was the independence referendum that got me into party politics. So I suppose you could say, like, I was already in politics, <laughs> but it was independence that made me realise which party I was. Mm-hmm. Um, so, no, I'm here to make things better and independence for me is not the end it's it's a means to an end of creating a fairer society where people aren't going to struggle like I did to get a house where folk who are homeless aren't you know challenged by a housing options officer saying oh I can't submit your form unless you give me a current address and fix these little niggles in the system that are that are stopping people from from realizing their full potential. Last question, because I know you've got to get into the chamber yeah. um, for two o'clock and today. But talk, talk a little bit about where you represent in the Highlands. I mean, what what do you think the biggest challenges facing your area? We've uh, we could have talked in this interview about the ferries and the issues connected with that, but. There's more. I think there's more systemic and structural issues that are facing the Highlands and Highlands than just the headlines about late ferries. Yeah, and on the face of it, you know, we were talking about this. My my committee um, just visited South Uist, mm. um, and colleagues were saying the issues that were being raised with us as to what struggles parents are having getting into employment are exactly the same as the ones that were raised in North Ayrshire. So access to housing and transport. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, that's right, but the solutions are different. So it is housing and transport. Those are the two biggest issues in, in the Highlands and Islands. But the solutions are different in my region to what they would be for Central Belt MSPs. And that's really the big hurdle that we always have to get over in the North is making people understand that national policy might not work in Shetland, that housing policy in Edinburgh might not apply in Caithness. Is there enough of that work going on? I mean, I feel like I say it every day, so (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to say yes. (laughs) That's brilliant. Emma, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Enjoy the chamber. Thank you. (laughs) I will try. So thank you very much to Emma for joining us on the Steamy this week. Let's now move to Westminster and hear from Alexander Brown, our Westminster correspondent, on the latest from the House of Commons. It's been, yeah, another week in Parliament filled with absolute chaos and incompetence. My name is Alexander Brown. I'm Scotsman's Westminster correspondent, here to talk you through it, ideally in five minutes or less. We begin with Nadim Zawahi, the former Chancellor, who, it emerged, has had to pay up to £5 million back after engaging in tax avoidance, something he said was accidental. Obviously, if it was accidental, it's uh, incompetence. And if it wasn't, it's very, very bad indeed. Uh, senior figures in the HMRC were saying this week that actually, if you'd pay a fine, which he did, it's very, that, that doesn't happen if it's accidental. But they were talking more generally rather than about this specific case. So we don't know the details yet. What we do know is that the Prime Minister is not speaking to him. He is livid. There is a cabinet away day. Uh, this week, uh, an investigation has now been ordered into how this happened and how a man who decided the tax system in this country was able to negotiate settlement and at the time that he you know, was avoiding paying it, which is very, very dodgy. 
indeed. And just, you know, I think Rishi Sunak hoped that the Slea scandals had been left in the past uh, under the previous regimes. And then in comes this and Boris Johnson with his loan being secured by the chairman of the BBC shortly before appointing him, which obviously no questions to answer there. Elsewhere, PMQs this week was pretty... Well, I mean, it was pretty upsetting, really. I mean, the prior, uh, not the Prime Minister, Keir Starmer, the possibly soon to be Prime Minister, talked about issues in the probation service and a report that basically blamed a recent murder on faults in the probation service, which uh, the way they talked around it was essentially saying, without saying, severe cuts to the justice budget have led to this. And he quoted the victim's family who said that, you know, Rishi Sunak and the government had blood on their hands which some commentators were very unhappy with and thought maybe that was too far. He shouldn't have said that, even if he was quoting them. But I think this is fertile ground for the Labour Party. And I think you also have to be honest about what's happened in the Justice Department. It's worth noting in England and Wales, the real terms budget cuts if to justice have been more than 40% in the past maybe five, six years. It's so severe that lawyers have held vigils outside the courts in protest uh, over the cuts because they say, you know, justice is being denied, justice delayed is justice denied. And the court backlog, this is all part of it, the probation service, the court's closures, I think hundreds of courts have been sold off by the government because I think it's easier to make the money of that and then move cases. I was a court reporter briefly, so I used to travel around the courts and you would see people from one part of London who would then have to travel across to a whole other section and it was just quite unseemly, just cuts of justice. I think it's good ground for the Labour Party. It was quite upsetting to hear at PMQs, but I think the Tory party being so long the, law, the party of law and order, and now the Met are in crisis and this is happening, it seems like an area where Labour are trying to reclaim, you know, patriotic, tough on crime. And I think it's going to be the background going forward. For all that and more, stay tuned to The Scotsman um, and I'll speak to you next week. So that's all we've got time for this week on The Steamy. Thank you very much, Alistair, for joining us. A reminder that you can find out exactly when The Steamy goes up online by signing up to our politics newsletter. You can visit scotsman.com slash newsletter to get updates on breaking politics stories as they happen, delivered to you by The Scotsman's political team. Alistair, thank you very much once again for listening. Thank you very much at home for listening. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs> Market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi? <laughs> this is First Minister's questions. Just once, just once it would be nice to get a First Minister's answer. Any political party in this chamber that was confident in their arguments around independence would not be desperate to deny the people of Scotland the right to make that choice. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman.